fairy tales, children's stories about magical and imaginary beings and lands, often the first lens we give young minds to view the world they live in. Many assume these are fictional stories to be taken lightly, but what if there is more to them? This is a podcast where we'll tell you some myths and tales that you thought you knew, and we'll show you how they are connected to real-life crimes today. This is Scary Tales, where the stories of your childhood meet real-life horror. We'll discuss how the light and happy tales of youth actually have a darker history to them. We'll also discuss true crime today and some of the eerie connections they have to the myths and legends of yesterday. Tune in for a new tale every other Tuesday. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, and anywhere you stream your podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back. Still Welcome not Hannah. back. Still not Hannah. That's just me. It's still Chase. Hopefully Hannah will be back um, in the January episodes. Until then, you will have to deal with old Chase here. It, it's a little after Christmas, I believe, when this episode comes out. So we hope you had a wonderful Christmas, got to spend some time with your family. And today we felt like we'd just bring you a little Christmas story. Yep. One that you probably all know. Today, you want to tell them what we're talking about today? We are talking about A Christmas Carol. Classic. And then Lacey's going to ruin it. I am. I am. With your true true crime. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So, do you know who wrote A Christmas Carol? I believe it was old Charles W. Dickens. Old W. Old W. He did. He wrote A Christmas Carol in 1843. And I don't know his middle name. That was just a guess. Yeah. Great guess. Brief synopsis, just in case you have not recently reread this nor seen the movie. Or the Muppet version. Or the Muppet version, which is great. The story centers around a mean-spirited and selfish man named Scrooge, as you all probably Eben- remember. Oh, Ebenezer. If you remember one thing about the story, it's probably Scrooge. Mm-hmm. Second Tiny Tim. Oh, or the um, the duck. What is the duck movie mm. with Ebenezer Duck Man? You know what I'm talking about? Talk- yeah, but duck I don't tales? Yeah, maybe. So on Christmas Eve, he is really unkind uh, to the people that work for him. He refuses to give charity, says, bah humbug. Uh, he's very rude to his nephew who invited Scrooge to spend Christmas with him. Uh, Scrooge is then visited by three ghosts, Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. And the ghosts take him on a journey where Scrooge is able you know, to see his childhood and then his life as a young man when he was more in love with money than his fiance. The Ghost of Christmas Present. It takes him to the home of one of his workers where he sees Tiny Tim, who is ill but very full of spirit. God bless us, Mm -hmm. everyone. Christmas Future then shows Scrooge his death, which terrifies him, as it would anybody. Yeah. He begs the spirit to change his fate. He promises to change his ways and honor Christmas with all of his heart. And when he wakes up on Christmas morning... He does have joy in his heart. He visits Tiny Tim's family, and he gives him a large turkey, and then he spends the rest of the day with his nephew's family. So it's a classic Christmas story, and it kind of embodies, you know, all the traditions that we know and love today that involve things like, you know, caroling, Christmas feast, gathering of friends, family, celebrating the season. And then there's the famous phrase, bah humbug, which is so ingrained in our minds that it actually became a part of the Oxford English Dictionary. I say if there's two things about the story that people remember, it's Scrooge mm-hmm. and Bah Humbug, just as kind of a... And, t- and God bless and everyone. God bless. So how did Dickens accomplish such a 
tremendous literary feat at only the age of 31 and as somebody right. who's 32 i'm feeling a little bit insecure i was fixing to say i'm 31 all i've got this pod all i've got this podcast <laughs> that, <laughs> well charles was one of eight children he lived in a poor neighborhood in london england and by the age of 12 he was working at a boot polish factory putting labels on bottles and if you listen to our episode on the victorians you know that the conditions of these factories were deplorable it was pre OSHA and all other good things that yeah, the reg worst. regulate this. So his father eventually went to debtor's prison and the rest of the family moved close to the prison and that left Charles alone to fend for himself. And this experience, it really you know, shaped his life and changed the way that he saw the world. He was in and out of school. He was frequently having to leave to go back to work, uh, but he was eventually able to get a job as a reporter for one of London's newspapers. Mm-hmm. He started to gain notoriety around 1836. It was when he published the posthumous papers of Pickwick Club, which were released in monthly installments. These were amusing stories that were kind of set around the adventures of the members of the Pickwick Club. So he yeah. went. And I think he's one of the first people to come out with these monthly installments, mm -hmm. which were cheaper. I mean, the money he earned was not as much as, like, say, one novel, but they he was able to do it frequently. And it's kind of like how in today's time they release seasons of shows on Netflix and you're like on, it's like a cliffhanger almost right. and you're waiting to see and people were on their edge of their seat waiting to hear the next installment of the story. So it was really smart on his part. Yeah. It's kind of like proving the concept as you go, which mm -hmm. I think a lot of uh, Netflix or other streaming services do with like the first season, they put it out as sort of like a test or a prototype. Mm -hmm. And then depending on the feedback, they'll do two, three, four, five, six more seasons. Lord knows we're never going to see the next Stranger Things whenever uh, that's coming out. We can only hope. Mm -hmm. So he went on to publish books such as Oliver Twist, David Copperfield, A Tale of Two Cities, and Great Expectations. But the seeds of A Christmas Carol were sown in 1843 when Dickens received an invitation by a London reformer to visit Field Lane. Hey, hey. That's Hannah. I'm sorry, my phone just interrupted, but that's Hannah. Let me. I'm, I did not phone. plan this. Hannah, we are in the middle of a friggin' episode, so go ahead and talk to the people. Listen, people, the guest hosts are just killing it. I don't even think I'm going to have a job coming back. You will, because we miss you so I much. Just, and I just said she's coming back in January, and literally, this was not planned at all. You just called me in the middle of an episode. This is amazing. Oh, I'm I'm super excited about this next episode because. Whitney's episode was so good. Yeah, love Whitney. She did so good. Right now we're talking about A Christmas Carol. You got anything to say uh, about old Charles W. Dickens? I love Charles Dickens. I love A Christmas Carol. I used to teach A Christmas Carol. It's it's a classic. Yeah. You got Ghost. <laughs> you got you got the Grim Reaper. You got Death. Yeah. Yep. I almost just almost Time got a little bit teary-eyed hearing you over the microphone. I miss you guys. Yeah. I miss you. Well, do you. Did you need anything immediately, or can I call you back in a second? No, I, no, I was just calling to say that I just finished the La, La Lorena. Urena, Nailed Urena. it. Just, and, and it was so good. Okay, I'm, I want to get um, your, you know, further criticisms, critiques after, so I'll give you a call yes, in a second. Please. Perfect. Love it so much. Y'all have fun. All right. Bye-bye. Oh, Bye-bye. <laughs> to our listeners, well, that was completely legitimate. not planned. Yep. You love to see it. You do. What a gal. Mm -hmm. 
So, as we continue, the British raggedy school movement was an attempt by reformers to educate the children of the poor. And since these children were poor, their clothes were often threadbare, hence the raggedy school moniker. Raggedy Ann, you know her? Yep. Very familiar. At that time, people were leaving the countryside. They were flooding the cities. They were providing cheap labor to the surrounding industries. And this cheap labor was needed. And the cheapest labor obviously came from children. So children as young as eight years old worked in the coal mines and the factories, and many of them actually died in the process. Yeah, it was not it was not a good time back then. Brutal. But prior to 1870, under Britain's laissez-faire fee-paying education school systems. That's nuts that you had to pay to go to school. Yeah. I would pay not to go to school. <laughs> Usually handpick their students according to ap- academic ability, their wealth, obviously, or religion. And by contrast, ragged schools could be attended by anyone. They were supposed to provide a free education, food, clothing, lodging, religious instruction, and other home missionary services. Dickens was appalled by what he found, and he wrote this in a letter. He said, I have seldom seen in all the strange and dreadful things I have seen in London and elsewhere anything so shocking as the dire neglect of soul and body exhibited in these children. And although I know, and I'm sure as it is possible for one to be of anything which has not happened, that it is the prodigious misery and ignorance of the swarming masses of mankind in England, the seeds of its certain ruin are sown. Mm. Beautifully written. Sad, sad story. Yeah. So he was initially not impressed with the curriculum and the fact that many of the teachers were just volunteers. He was really quite serious about education because he saw it as a way to save the working class children from the ravaged hands of industrialization. That's still the case. I feel like these days that education can really save someone. Mm-hmm. Well, and he knew firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. And you just don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So conversely, a badly run school could be the breeding ground for young cunning criminals. And these schools were often severely overcrowded. They lacked ventilation and basic amenities. Uh, even for punishment, children were made to strip naked and then were beaten with wooden canes. Mm-hmm. He was inspired to write a novel that embodied everything he saw at this school and a Christmas Carol was born. I guess the negative things at the school. Sure. And the sadness that's in a Christmas Carol. Because mm-hmm. it, it is sad, but it redeems itself in the end. Sure. It only took him six weeks to write and upon publication it sold 6,000 copies and has never been out of print. Dolly. So it was an immediate success. The goal was always to bring about societal change, and six months after it was published, the 1844 Factories Act was instated, which said that 9- to 13-year-olds could only work nine hours a day, six days a week. Oh. That's progress. I feel like so much, number one, awesome that literature brought about societal change in that right. short, short period and of time. And that was his goal with a lot of his writings. Sure. Number two, it's so interesting to view history and things like this and acknowledge that something as extreme as children working nine hours, six days a week was considered progress. Mm-hmm. They, they kept working on it. Yeah. Yeah. We moved the ball forward. So anyway, the Elementary Education Act of 1880 made school boards enforce compulsory attendance from five to 10 years. Attendance officers might visit the homes of absent or truant children. Children who were employed needed a certificate to show they had reached the educational standard. And employers of these children who could not show this were penalized. There you go. Yeah. 
I'm trying to remember my first job. I think if you were under 16, you had to get some sort of written permission from your parents mm-hmm. or something to that extent. You hear that? That's Chase's phone buzzing on the, the piano. That's Cody. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> He's so popular tonight. So that is it for A Christmas Carol from our good friend Charles W. The Scary Tales. Can you look up um, the his actual middle name? I will. And I will give it to you at the beginning of the true crime. Ooh, cliffhanger. See you after the break. Bye-bye. All right. Do you have any legitimate guesses as to what his middle name was? Walden. Next guess. Whitaker. Nope. Winston. Charles John Huffam Dickens. H U A quadruple name. Yep. So there's that. It wasn't even a W. What a disappointment. Everything I know is a lie. Well, welcome back. It's the true crime portion of the show. And this week, we are going to be talking about what is known as the 1849 Bermondsey Horror. And this story is one that involves murder, a dinner party, and Charles Dickens. And Charles Dickens is just kind of involved in the end, but I, I found this and I was like, there we go. And it's 1849, so right when he would have been doing his thing. Because he wrote Christmas Carol in 1843, correct? Roughly. I don't remember right. exactly. So this case surrounds Maria and Frederick Manning. They were a married couple who in 1849 committed a heinous crime in London, England. So here we go. Maria was born Maria de Rue in Switzerland in 1821, and she eventually moved to London to work as a lady's maid to the very wealthy Lady Blantyre. Blantyr. How, Blantyr. How would you say that? No clue. Okay. You know I struggled <laughs> with uh, French. Yeah. Um, and th- she was the daughter of the Duchess of Sutherland. So working in such an opulent environment led Maria to become obsessed with the finer things in life and dreaded the idea of living in poverty. I mean, who wouldn't? But back then, it was really rough. Not that it's not rough now, but mm-hmm. just being alive back then, if you survived to like the age of 30, you're doing good. But Yeah, if you had children, if you had to come out with regulation about children working nine mm-hmm. hours a day, six days then a week. Then the adult side of that. The average just... uh, yeah, standard of living is probably mm-hmm. pretty crappy. So a lady's maid, it might kind of just sound like, eh, but it was actually a really sought-after job at the time. And if they worked for a good employer, a maid would be able to experience a lifestyle beyond the ordinary girl in London. So this was a job that you wanted, which makes me think of the episode on um, Lady Bowtree. And how all those girls wanted that job really bad. Mm. And then she murdered them all. Uh, Spoiler alert. If you haven't listened to that episode, I'm sorry. In 1846, on a boat trip with Lady Blantyre, young Maria met a man by the name of Patrick O'Connor. You want to guess where his... Irish. Yeah. He was a 50-year-old Irishman and worked as a customs officer. And he was a fairly wealthy man, which attracted Maria immediately. They hit it off quite well. saying she's a gold digger. But she ain't alone with no broke Irishman. (laughs) (laughs) They hit it off quite well, and Maria suggested that the two meet up the next time they were both in London. And I was just thinking about that. Like, it's that's so much harder. It seems so easy to us in this century just to text someone and be like, yo, you want to meet up? But back then, 
you had to write a letter, then you had to wait to get the letter, and you probably did had you to get, get my, on a boat. <laughs> did you get my telegraph? Mm-hmm. Months later, I would love to send a telegraph. I'm sad we don't do that mm. anymore. Months later, O'Connor came to the Stafford house in Bloomsbury where Maria was staying. However, this is when he learned that Maria had started seeing a man by the name of Frederick Manning. And Manning was Maria's age and worked as a guard on the Great Western Railway. Mm. Although not wealthy at the time, Frederick promised Maria that he was to inherit a large sum of money. Convenient. Mm-hmm. So Maria had a dilemma to face. Should she go with O'Connor, who was a man of means, but significantly older? I think he was about 20 years older than her. And he was also a drinker. Or she could choose Frederick, who was not as wealthy, and overall just the weaker character. Huh. But with the promise of an inheritance, Maria decided on Frederick, and the two were married at St. James Church in 1847. They bought a pretty nice home, which they named the Minivare House. But Maria quickly realized that this supposed inheritance would never come, and she needed to come up with a new plan. Mm, so she, bait and switch. yeah, she began sleeping with O'Connor, apparently under her husband's approval. And oh. in fact, in fact, O'Connor frequently came to visit the Manning uh, home for meals and maybe a little romp with both of them. Mills I don't know. And more. I'm not hating. Meals and more. We love alliteration. I've said it once. I'll say it again. One day, Maria purchased what's known as quicklime and a shovel. And at the time, it was thought that quicklime quickened the decaying process. Fast forward to science, and now we know that it actually preserves the body, but it just helps cover up the smell. So they were on the right track. Science facts. On August 8, 1849, Maria invited O'Connor over for dinner but with plans for murder. A murder. A murder in Savannah. <laughs> uh, however, I do declare. I do declare. However. I hope oh, everyone understands the many office references. I'm sorry. That, it's also an office podcast. Yeah. Scary Tales in parentheses, also an office podcast. However, O'Connor brought a guest with him on August 8th. And so this kind of thwarted their plan to commit murder. So she just invited him over the next day with plans to be reinstated at that time. So when he arrived the next evening, Maria suggested that O'Connor may want to wash his hands at the sink before dinner. I guess that was a novel concept back then. (laughs) And as he stood at the sink to do so, Maria took out a pistol and shot O'Connor in the head. To their surprise, the gunshot did not kill O'Connor, so Frederick beat him to death with a crowbar. The two then buried him underneath the flagstones in their kitchen, and then they covered the body with quicklime, and they thought they were speeding up the decaying process. So, that, pause. Mm-hmm. At this point in the story, as someone who does not know the end of the story, yeah. I'm having a really hard time identifying a motive if she had no financial gain from killing O'Connor. No, that was her, that was her point. Then she could go to his house and steal all his stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. To physically take his mm-hmm. wealth, not to legally inherit it. Right, right, okay. right, right. right. Okay. The also that reminds me of the Telltale Heart, Edgar Allan Poe, the the heart under the floor. Yeah. The following days, Maria visited O'Connor's lodgings. Here you go, where she took anything of value. Two days after the murder, O'Connor's friends noticed that he was missing, because he had told his friends of his plans to eat with the Mannings on the night of August 9th. So his friends started there with questioning. Maria said that O'Connor was there for dinner on the night of the eighth, but that she hadn't seen him since. 
And the visit left the Mannings unnerved because they suspected that these friends were actually just detectives. And they decided that they needed to get the heck out of Dodge or London, as they say, as soon as possible. So the next day, Maria sent Frederick to sell all of their furniture. Imagine selling all the furniture in this house in one day. That sounds difficult. It's kind of what we did at the last house. Yeah. And then she boarded a train to Edinburgh while Frederick took a ship to Jersey. (laughs) They just uh, called it quits. By this time, O'Connor's friends had gone to the police about their suspicions of the Mannings. And so the police decided to take a visit to the Mannings' home. They even dug up the, I was reading, they dug up the garden in the back. But then eventually they saw that these flagstones in the kitchen looked sus. So they lifted them up. And there they found the battered and bloody body of Patrick O'Connor. The police were able to track down the Mannings, and both were brought back to London and placed in Horsemonger Lane. How do you say that? Their word for um, their the jail, G-A-O-L. A-O-L, yeah. Gal. Yeah, because we saw a bunch of them in Ireland, but I don't remember. I don't know how to pronounce it. We're going to go with Gal. Initially, Frederick denied having killed Patrick and blamed the entire deal on Maria. However, he later told the police, I never liked him, so I battered his head with a ripping chisel. <laughs> yeah. Also, he they knew that Maria could not have moved those flagstones by herself. So, Talk about an interesting statement. I never liked him, so I battered his head. There are plenty of people I just don't like. Yeah, I'm probably not going to batter And I still head. smile at them and say, how you doing? Yeah. The media focused heavily on Maria because it was simple economics, a story of a woman. Murder would sell more papers at the time. She was attractive, foreign, and had served in noble households. So it was almost as if she had been tailor-made for this spotlight. Mm. They were eventually moved to Newgate Prison, where they would stand trial. And the trial began on Thursday, October the 25th, and only lasted two days. Both were represented by counsel, and their respective lawyers tried to shift responsibility for the killing from their client to the other's client. And it seemed that both Frederick and Maria each expected the other would shoulder the responsibility, but neither did. And in the end, it only took the jury 45 minutes to find both of the Mannings guilty of murder. Maria had been composed throughout the entire trial, but when the verdict was read, she screamed at the jury, You have treated me like a beast of the wild forest. I read that wrong. You have treated me like a wild beast of the forest. Mm. The two were both sentenced to death by hanging and awaited execution for two weeks in the prison. During that two-week time period, Maria attempted suicide by digging her long fingernails into her throat in an attempt to strangle herself. I don't think that has ever worked. Um, The executions were set for the morning of Tuesday, November the 13th, 1849. These executions were to attract the largest crowd ever to attend a public hanging. It is estimated that between 30 and 50,000 people came to watch. And this included people from both the upper class and the lower class, kind of like the circus. Like it brought the money and it brought people. It was a form of entertainment. Mm -hmm. I feel like in a lot of ways, people got excited about seeing that. People would pay good money for like the good Mm -hmm. seats. Plus it was probably you know hot in the news at the time but like what else are you going to do back then right yeah the gallows were erected on the roof of the prison and were described as quote a huge gaunt and ominous looking structure the times newspaper actually reported on the entire event and i won't read you the whole thing 
but I'll read you a little excerpt. So should I continue in my British accent? Please. I'm, I have yeah, a, it's going to turn into Australian then country and then something. Just, but here we go. All you got to do is channel Harry Potter. Right. <laughs> Me just in my mind, just like metaphorically putting on some glasses and drawing a score on my head. The Chamber of Secrets. At last, nine o'clock struck, and shortly after, the dreadful, I can't do that, dreadful procession emerged from a small door in the inner side of a square piece of brickwork which rests on the east end of the prison roof. To reach this height, a long and steep flight of stairs had to be climbed in an only wonderful, I'm sorry, to be climbed, and it, no, that's what it says, it's just old English, and it only wonderful that Manning, in his weak and tottering state, was able to ascend so far. As he ascended to the steps leading to the drop, his limbs tottered underneath him, and he was scarcely able to move. So I guess he, like, fell going up the steps. When his wife approached the scaffold, he turned round with his face towards the people, while Calcraft proceeded, that was the executioner, proceeded to draw over his head the white nightcap and adjust the fatal rope. The executioner then drew the nightcap over the female prisoner's head, and all the necessary preparations now being completed, the scaffold was cleared of all of its occupants except the two wretched beings doomed to die. In an instant, Calcraft withdrew the bolt, the drop fell, and the sentence of the law was fulfilled. Frederick died almost without a struggle while Maria writhed for some seconds. Their bodies were left to hang for the customary hour before they were taken down and in the evening buried in the precincts of the gal. So also, um, coincidentally, they also their bodies were also prepared with quick lie. I mean, not quick lie, quick um, lime. Mm. And here's where I tie this whole thing together. Are you ready? Yes. A one Mr. Charles W. Dickens <laughs> also attended the execution and wrote a letter to the Times which expressed his revulsion for the publicity surrounding the event. And he had really gone he had really just gone to watch the people, not the actual execution, or so he said. Quote I was a witness of the execution at Horsemonger Lane this morning. I believe that the sight so inconceivably awful as the wickedness and levity of the crowd collected at the execution this morning. When the two miserable creatures who attracted all this ghastly sight about them were turned quivering into the air, there was no more emotion, no more pity, no more thought that the two immortal souls had gone to judgment than if the name of Christ had never been heard in this world. And then he also stated, thousands upon thousands of upturned faces so inexpressibly odious in their brutal mirth or callousness that a man had cause to feel ashamed of the shape he wore and to shrink himself as fashioned in the image of the devil. And I don't know what any of that meant, but it doesn't sound like he's happy to be there. <laughs> yeah. In fact, the crowd was so excited that one woman died in the crush and two men were severely injured, which sadly very, and I can't talk about it long, I'm going to get pissed off, the whole Travis Scott Took the words out of my mouth. Yep. Dickens would go on to campaign against public hanging, and public hangings were eventually abolished in 1868. And I think they're right on, that right on the money. Nobody needs to see that. Nobody wants to see that. Some people can be redeemed. Well, even the description of the hanging in all of its eloquence mm -hmm. just kind of makes you wonder, like, how far we've come. Like, with lethal injection, like, nobody's writing a yeah, monologue like that. Yeah, soliloquy like that. I also it. they I read that she wore black satin, a black satin dress to be hung, mm. and after that, women completely stopped wearing black satin. There's a book on it. I think it's called um, "The Woman Who Killed Black Satin," <laughs> something like that. Sure. 
anyway, so I, you see what I did there with the little Charles Dickens at the end? Yep. I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Christmas Carol and the, uh, what were they called? The uh, Bell Bermondsey Horror. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Hopefully by the next time, Hannah will be back. We miss her a lot. Until then, you can check us out on Instagram at Scary Tales Podcast. There's a link there. You can click on it. You can get some shirts. You can get some sweatshirts. They're warm. It's cold outside. Just do it. And we hope you're doing well. Thanks, Chase. Yep. Merry um, Christmas. Merry Christmas and a bye bye. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. And Happy Kwanzaa. New Year. Kwanzaa. Mm-hmm. And bye bye. Bye bye.